Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio. A plethora of apologies for last week's episode, which was supposed to be enumerated 1420, which makes this week's 1421. (laughs) I very likely wasn't trying to mess with anyone's heads, (laughs) for sure. Today's episode is entitled, There's No Place Like Homes. Mm -hmm. Our podcast title is On Podgram. I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And oh, my stars and garters. There's so much going on in the genres. We we talked about the sensational season three of the best genre sitcom on television, uh, Mythic Quest. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Wednesday, which is not on Wednesday, but streaming, is on Netflix. Tim Burton's enjoyably contrary take on Teenage Wednesday Adams. Mm. It's a lot of weird fun. Especially Jenna Ortega's intensely macabre performance in the title role and strong performances from a solid supporting cast, including Gwen Christie. Mm. She's the Nevermore Academy principal that Wednesday goes to. Christina Ricci. Yes, I saw that she has a little bit of a cameo role in that show, so very interested to see her. Mm, A Wednesday in herself, but here she is the Academy's lecturer in carnivorous plants. Ah, excellent. (laughs) And Penelope Cruz is Morticia Adams, and a good one too. And Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones? What did I say? Penelope Cruz. Why did I say Penelope Cruz? (laughs) I was like, I'm pretty sure it's Catherine Zeta-Jones. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, sometimes they're, they're paired in my head, those two. I don't know why. Uh, Louise Guzman is Gomez Adams. Emma Myers is Enid, Wednesday's werewolf roommate. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a problem. She can't actually turn fully into a werewolf. So there's lots of teen angst there. I was not a teenage werewolf. That is a classic trope, <laughs> but happy to see it play out if it's done well. I also have to hand it to Victor Dorambantu, who is Thing. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Ricky Lindholm from the satirical musical comedy Garfunkel and Oates. She plays a therapist in this show. Lots of fun. Wednesday on Netflix. We will drill down into these deeper at a later date. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Marvel, <laughs> uh, well, we kind of did, but James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special has dropped on Disney Plus as mm-hmm. an early Christmas treat, following in the furry four paw prints of the horripilatingly hilarious Halloween special Werewolf by Night. Assuming that Peter Quill, Star-Lord, would like to have a proper Earth-style Christmas, even though he is off-world, Mantis and Drax decide they will go to his home world to get him a gift. (laughs) (laughs) Naturally, they assume that what he'd like most, given how often Quill has banged on about him during the Guardian's adventures, they reckon that Star-Lord needs his very own Kevin Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) And the holiday saga of bringing home the bacon turns out, not to my particular surprise, as much silly fun as I expected it would be, which is to say rather a lot. Nice. I can see it becoming a Christmas 
classic movie that people will watch. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Actually, it's not a full movie. It's a, basically an episode. Right. So and if you were going to do this for anybody, it would be The Guardians. Yeah. I think that's the right kind of area to, to pitch a Christmas special. I have also watched a couple of episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Oh, yes. What do you think of it? It is absolutely awesome. Okay. Excellent. The voyages of the USS Enterprise under Captain Pike, played by the MCU's Black Bolt, Anson Mount. And it's set about eight years before James T. Kirk becomes her commander. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a a spin-off from, well, notionally a spin-off from season three of Star Trek Discovery. Yep. And you could also see it as picking up Gene Roddenberry's original Star Trek pilot named The Cage from, I think, 1965. The network rejected it, but they liked it enough to ask for changes to be made. So, you know, um, I think there was some schedule conflicts and uh, Shatner became... Uh, Captain Kirk and a few other changes were made. But, you know, that's the that was the genesis of the ongoing Star Trek franchise. Uh, it's not often that a rejected television pilot gets picked up for a series close to six decades later. I think we're going to see a bit more of that these days, like picking up on old ideas. Here we are. It's, it's gloriously good. And, yes, there's a moment where Black Bolt rescues Mystique, which is to say Rebecca Romine, who was one of the mystiques in the X-Men movies and who now plays Pike's first officer in Strange New Worlds. Oh. And that's over on Paramount+. Plus. Nice. Uh, I've also finished that long walk with The Walking Dead, season 11. Season 11, gosh. And there are like three spin-off series yes. from it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're still walking. They brought it down to a fairly graceful landing, I okay. thought, as much as you After can. After all that time. After yeah. all that time. Uh, you know, everybody got a little check-in, which is really strange when you're mm. talking about The Walking Dead because some of them are zombies now themselves. I was going to say, it's probably not all happy endings, I'm sure. No. But no. I'm not I'm not a Walking Dead person, so I feel like I'd, I know very little about that world. Look, they kept cycling through the same trope of, we'll find a new community and mm. it will be not what it seems. Do you think it was time for it to be laid to rest, so to speak? Yes, but of course, being a zombie show, it's it'll rise again with some sequels to it with some of the characters. Yeah, right, spin-offs and all of that. Yeah, that more like spin-offs, or morgue spin-offs. Uh, I've also started watching Warrior Nun on Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Just because of the title. <laughs> that one came out a little while ago, I think. It's full of Catholic guilt. It's um, set in uh, Spain, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of... You know, every second, every second bit of the soundtrack is either a church bell or a choir. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, it's kind of like Buffy for a different age. Okay, um, like a younger pitch. It, yeah, no, no, a bit older. It feels more like um, I don't know, a kind of a more religious version of Supernatural. Okay, so I'll see how it develops. I'm just kind of interested in it. Yeah, in it. I think that's another one that's based on a. Graphic novel. So, so much stuff. Lots. Mm-hmm. And Megan, we, we both watched the next bit of stuff. So, yes. Shall we have a track? Yeah, let's have a track before we launch into having a little look at the sequel to the 2020 movie Enola Holmes. We're going to take a bit of a gander at Enola Holmes 2. Yes, we heard uh, the Enola Holmes Detective Agency, and that is from Enola Holmes 2. That one was composed by Daniel Pemberton. He also composed the music for the first film. And he's also worked on the likes of The After Party, which is the murder mystery multiple threads TV show that I covered a while back, The Dark Crystal, Ocean's 8, the USS Callister episode of Black Mirror, 
in my ah. opinion, the finest episode. Um, and he's also worked on Into the Spider-Verse and will be working on the other two films across the Spider-Verse and beyond the Spider-Verse. Oh, gosh. So he's got some pretty good genre chops. Um, and, yes, he did the score to Enola Holmes and Enola Holmes 2, which we are about to launch into discussion of. Uh, it's out on Netflix now. The first one came out uh, in 2020 and had pretty nice success on the platform. It had 76 million views in the first month or so. The series is based, series, the series of films, I suppose, is based on the books by Nancy Springer. So she created the character of Enola. She's not canon from the Arthur Conan Doyle (laughs) stories. So Nancy Springer's series, the Enola Holmes Mysteries, there's five books in that one. And it's sort of taking inspiration. The first film was based on a book from that series called The Case of the Missing Marquess. But the sequel actually is not based on one of the books itself. It takes inspiration from real-life past events, notably um, the 1888 strike uh, of the Match Girls in the Match Factory. The strike of the Match Girls? Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Uh, And the life of activist Sarah Chapman. So that's kind of where our main plot is coming from. And uh, we've also got the writer Jack Thorne returning for this one and the director Harry Bradbeer also returning for this one. And Bradbeer sort of said the vibe of this film, which I think sums it up nicely, is now that Enola has kind of found her feet as a character, she has to learn to work with others because she's very self-reliant, independent spirit, and that's how she was raised. But it's much more a story about her finding allies and her finding a community and her finding um, how to accept help from others that can make her stronger. She needs a Scooby gang. Exactly. It's about her kind of forming a little bit of, of that of that gang. So... Uh, Of course, the sequel, we've also seen the return of Millie Bobby Brown in the title role of Enola Holmes, who is, which I didn't explicitly say, but is the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes. And we get Sherlock back as well, Henry Cavill. We do. Henry Cavill has returned as Sherlock. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown also has a production credit for this, which I think is pretty amazing for someone of her age. And she got a nice hefty pay packet for starring in this too, I think off the back of probably her producing role and also the success of the first one. So she's doing pretty well for herself. She's a bit of an entrepreneur. So The funny thing is that the character in Ola Holmes at the start of this isn't doing quite no, so well. because the poor little thing. <laughs> she's facing, you know, a gender gap as a, as a consulting detective yeah. and just people are just not rocking up to her door. Yeah, and they do a quite a nice job of sort of setting up where Enola's at. She's found a little bit of success in the first events from the first film and now she's really trying to make her name as a detective in her own right. But, of course, as you mentioned, faces some challenges, not least of which um, gender norms but also the fact her brother is a renowned detective in of that era already uh, and so she's kind of struggling a bit to find her feet and not finding she has many cases come through her door but then one does mm. she's tasked with uh, finding a missing uh, factory worker a girl who works in the match factory called Sarah Chapman uh, so one of Sarah's uh, she calls her sister but close friend of Sarah's, also works at the Match Factory. Young girl, um, Bessie, comes into the agency, the detective agency, and asks for Enola's help. 
And so a plot of conspiracy and murder quickly unravels <laughs> with Enola at the very centre, of course, and a series of borderline implausible events follow. But um, we've also got weaving throughout Sherlock, the man himself uh, who is investigating his own case. But we do see a bit of him as as the cases cross paths and have a little bit of overlap um, as they're going about their individual detection and many misadventures and dangerous situations ensue that Enola and co managed to scrape through fairly unscathed, all things considered. Uh, Cause of <laughs> course the, the tone of this is quite firmly in a young adult friendly kind of cozy mystery yeah, vibe yeah. stakes. Stakes are high cause it is murder, I suppose, but um, all in all it's, it's meant to be very palatable, fun, silly, um, but I think thoroughly clever and enjoyable. Well, Look, they've said that these movies, these two movies are a bit forgettable, and I must admit that was the case, mm. but that's possibly just because I watch so much yes. of these things. <laughs> you know, it has to be absolutely exceptional. Yeah. Now that I look over my notes, and I'm noticing that, uh, well, yeah, it does remind me of that other series we reviewed, Miss Scarlet and the Duke, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, female consulting detective Victorian in Victorian era, yep, yep. Or even the Peter Noster gang in uh, Doctor Who, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, except that was an alien lizard, uh, not an alien, but a lizard. Yep creature (laughs) but you know there's lots of stuff i liked about this i like the fact that they hit the ground literally running at the start really punched into it Uh uh and ola was running from the peelers (laughs) as usual (laughs) uh and you know there's something of the sensibilities of guy ritchie's outings with sherlock holmes yes so i also like the uh her relationship the character's relationship with the ridiculously young lord tewksbury yes (laughs) (laughs) You know, a bit of romance, a bit of the mance there going on. Yep, yep. And I think that uh, Billy does the what I call the Murdoching quite well. Uh, Detective William Murdoch in the Murdoch mystery. Oh, Millie, yes, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. she does. I don't know why I wrote Billy there. <laughs> Word check got me on that mm. one. Uh, yeah, but you know, he, he has this particular look where he sort of frowns a little bit. Yeah, she does the that well. Look, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. those those addresses to the camera. Yes, so they, we do do a little bit of um, fourth wall breaking of, of a type, which is, yeah, basically just talking to camera, which I think, Rob, you and I discussed a little bit, is a, is a, is a tricky line to tread. I think sometimes it can be overused, but I actually think in this case it's pulled off quite nicely um, and she does quite a nice job of including the audience in that way and it's a nice way of kind of bringing, along, bringing you along uh, in the plot and keeping that quirky light tone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Henry Cavill here is a better Sherlock this time. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the characters. So Henry Cavill, as you mentioned, Sherlock Holmes, I do... I agree that he's got more to work with. We're very much veering into much more Sherlock canon territory with this one. Yeah. Uh, they're introducing a lot of Sherlocky ideas. And I do think that he's settled a bit into the tone he wants to play for this, which is a little bit of a, a ragtag, exasperated older brother. Um, and I think he, he pulls it off. We see him legless at one stage, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was... She plays pretty well. Pretty well. <laughs> and then, uh, yes, Millie Bobby Brown as Enola Holmes. I think she's she's fantastic. Yeah. I think she really holds pretty much this whole film up. I think she's definitely someone who can carry a film for sure. And I think that she brings a lot of lightness and charisma. She's well supported by the likes of Cavill and also Helena Bonham Carter playing... Mrs. Holmes, mm-hmm. mum. 
Eudoria. Eudoria, yes. <laughs> who I'm delighted to find is a complete incendiary arsonist in this. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I will say, I love Helena Bonham Carter, but she is back playing her usual yeah. eccentric yeah. typecast role. She does it beautifully, but um, no surprises here from her per se. I, I do like seeing uh, her her mentors, you know, her, yes. uh, her, her, her mother and her sensei, the, um, uh, what's the character name? Uh, Edith? Is that... Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember which particular character she was. Too many names, too many years have passed. And also David Thewlis playing the villain of the piece, I guess you could call him. Yes, so we're introducing a couple of extra names. David Thewlis as Grail, sinister member of the police force, I guess. Yeah. Uh, We've also got Sharon Duncan Brewster as Mira Troy and uh, Hannah Dodd, who stars as a character called Cicely. So... Mm. Got a couple of extra people there in addition to those returning from the first film, which does also include Lewis Partridge playing Tewksbury. You mentioned before the young lord. He's a he's a, visca- a viscount, a uh, nature-loving viscount. A viscount. 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 <laughs> I'm showing my lowly status. Um, and, yes, he holds a position at the House of Lords, so he's got a little bit of power at his fingertips there. Bit of a reformer too. Yes, indeed, indeed. I think it's it's he's a nice character actually, and I think he's yeah. he's a nice counter to Enola's free spirited ways. Um, Adil Akhtar plays Lestrade again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and we do have a Watson this time out. Oh, and also, well, look, you know, this is a Sherlock Holmes story, so you know, you're not going to be too surprised that Moriarty turns up. Yes, so this is what I mean. In they're definitely starting to pull the levers of uh, the Holmes kind of canon and introducing bits and pieces, like we see two, two, one, B. Baker Street and so on. So, unfortunately, we couldn't get Sam Claffin does not return as Mycroft uh, because he had scheduling conflicts. I I think everybody he wanted to be involved, they wanted him to be involved, but it just didn't work out. So, it does mean, though, we zoom in much more on the the Sherlock-Anola chemistry, and I think that they have a great chemistry together. And Watson shows up eventually, too. He does. I wasn't going to mention him, but yes, he does pop up. So we won't mention who he is, maybe, but they do start to incorporate a bit of um, of Sherlock's life. When Moriarty shows up, what I liked about the way the character was portrayed, mm. amongst many things, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the character's head snakes from side to side. Oh, yes. Like Moriarty's does in the stories. And they don't always do that, mm-hmm. but I, I noticed that right up front. That, that was obviously that actor has uh, put some thought into how that's going to be portrayed. You'd hope so. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's a big, big shoes, big shoes to fill for sure. I think overall, um, it's. I mean, you're someone who definitely, I think we've talked about this when we've looked at other Holmes properties, who's very steeped in all the adaptations, the law, quite familiar. How do you feel about, because this is, like I said, it's really starting to get much more into Sherlock territory. How do you feel about that as a, do we need another Sherlock kind of thing in our lives? Oh, always. (laughs) (laughs) My gut feeling, or as I would often say, my elementary my dear Watson feeling, is that there's plenty of room and we're off into all sorts of territory now. Mm. We've got modern adaptations set in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen a robot play Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> We've seen it all at you this know, point. You know, there have been mice yep. playing. You know, it's just everything. Yep. So 
in a way, that is the mark of a truly unstoppable franchise mm. where it becomes every – it's like everything everywhere all at it's once. all possible It's all in of... the multiverse. Yeah. Well, that's kind of – it's the Holmes multiverse. <laughs> what would that be? The H the, – the SHCU. Yeah. Yeah. The shoe. <laughs> well, the game is afoot and it is the Enola Holmes too. I liked it. Um, I don't think it's particularly hugely memorable for me, mm. but I've seen worse. <laughs> I praise you, lot, Rob. I've seen worse. worse. <laughs> I think personally, if you look at it, the components, like the plot and so on, it's it's nothing special per se, but I actually think it's about the vibes, the acting, the chemistry. That all comes together and I think that's what makes it a really fun watch. Mm. Uh, I do agree. I think it it's... The plot isn't that complicated or clever or interesting. The mystery itself is a bit weak, I think. And as with the first one, based on some silly puzzles and coincidences and, and you know, I mean, enough with the anagrams. <laughs> but um, oh, David Thewlis, I thought, is his usual vile. Yeah, he's, he's, he's enjoying a bit, <laughs> yeah. of, a bit of that. But I think it builds nicely on what the first one set up and improves that formula. Like now there's more room to breathe and the characters are established. Uh, There's humour there that keeps it really going. I think Millie Bobby Brown definitely has like a comedy muscle that she's flexing a bit here and that improves on the basic plot and the convenient situations. For Um, for frock fans, there's a formal ball that takes place. Yes, and I thought it was nice some of the the high society touches they included, which I liked a bit of the realism, as realistic as we're getting, but some little tidbits. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. The social commentary I thought was really good in this. Yeah, I agree. I think they didn't have to do that. But I like that they did. Yeah, That's kind of especially the, I thought the whole match girl setting story was was good. I I agree. I think all the pieces came together in the end quite well, even though separately there's some weaknesses here mm. or there. That's kind of how I feel about it overall. And I definitely think like the MVP of the whole thing is the chemistry between Cavill and Millie Bobby Brown. Like that. Oh, yeah, sure. And more with them together. I think she's fantastic. Um, I would watch another of these. Yeah, I would too, actually. Uh, and I, I think if they're smart, they'll probably keep pushing them out. This one did quite well as well. As um, I don't know if it did the same as the first one, but definitely had quite a lot of streaming hours across all Netflix, 93 Netflix countries. People seem to really be responding to this series of films. So, You know, it's always a pleasure for me when I watch a Holmes adaptation where they actually, because uh, if you're in America, they always call Moriarty Moriarty. Oh really? They do. Oh, yeah. with a bit of the yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, if it's if it's anything to do with with British productions in any way, shape, or form, they they will call him Moriarty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So I think overall, Enola Holmes two now on Netflix. If you like the first one, I personally like this one more. Yeah. Oh. And uh, I think yeah, definitely check it out if you're interested interested in some cozy mystery vibes, or if you like Millie Bobby Brown, or if you like Sherlock adjacent things. Mm. It's a very cosy Holmes. It is. It is. Uh, which is a nice, nice vibe because there's a lot of more gritty things out there, which of which we will tackle in a moment. Hi, this is Richard E. Grant, and you're listening to Triple R. Cheers and chin chin. Uh, Nicholas Brittell there with the main title theme for Andor, Star Wars Andor, mm-hmm. Episode 8. And they're actually different. For each of the episodes, they're slightly different. Or they, oh. The music evolves oh. over the series, Very just as clever. the characters do, yeah. Star Wars and slash or, as I call it, <laughs> and or what? 
in Disney Plus. It dropped, and now all 12 episodes have played mm-hmm. uh, from the first season. The showrunner of Andor or uh, SWA, SWA. <laughs> head writer and exec producer Tony Gilroy, US American filmmaker. Uh, he took over from Stephen Schiff and wrote five of the 12 episodes in the series' first season. Hmm. He was going to direct multiple episodes, but, you know, COVID sort of um, popped in travel restrictions because Andor was filmed over in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, Gilroy also wrote screenplays for the Bourne trilogy mm-hmm. and wrote and directed the fourth film of the franchise. He also directed Michael Clayton in 2007 Mm -hmm. and got noms for Academy Award for Best Director and the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Very nice. Mm. He did rewrites and some shoots, reshoots for uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story in 2016. And also worked on the historical fantasy movie, The Great Wall, which I really enjoyed. Oh, that's right. Matt Damon, right? Matt Mm -hmm. Damon, yes. And was consultant on House of Cards. Okay which is a fair bit of political writing expo. Mm, uh, in the, in the it all checks out. It all checks out. It okay. It's good when that happens, isn't it? <laughs> or is it just because I'm cherry-picking his credits? <laughs> uh, anyway, they were going to do a, a five-season series mm. of Andor, but mm-hmm. they sort of found that that was going to not work out. It's just too big. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So they, they're just going to have two seasons, which will lead directly into the events of Rogue One. Okay. So, like, a stormtrooper hitting the helmet by an Ewok Deadfall log. I get a bit dizzy when I'm trying to work out where a new Star Wars piece fits within the franchises. Well, this uh, one's a pretty easy one, though, right? It's kind of absurdly complicated continuity sometimes. So I take a breath on this and go, Star Wars Andor. Uh, I could be your movie screen crawl on this, but let's go more with more of an audio friendly blaster bolt point sort of exposition. Pew! Andor is a prequel to the 2016 movie Rogue One, Mm -hmm. which detailed the theft from the naughty galactic empire of the plans for the evil, mean and nasty Death Star, the planet-killing battle station, and the conveyance thereof of those plans to the much nicer Rebel Alliance. Mm -hmm. And Rogue One was itself a direct prequel to the 1977 movie that started it all, Star Wars, uh, since retcon titled as Star Wars A New Hope. So, Andor is a prequel to a prequel. Yes, and it is OG, back at the beginning, where some of this all began. And we thought that was Rogue One. Some might argue one of the, the finest Star Wars of the films. I do. I think it's it's <laughs> fantastic. And I think part of that is because it sits outside of the usual canon, could create its own characters, do its own thing. Hmm. And then this one, yes, yeah, slots in nicely right before that. And we get a bit of the backstory and the history of one of the pl- main players in Rogue One, Cassie and Andor. Pew, pew, second blaster point. <laughs> that means it takes place after the time of the third of the prequel Lucas movies, uh, Revenge of the Sith, mm-hmm. the standalone movie Solo, A Star Wars Story, and also the animated series Clone Wars, The Bad Batch, and Rebels, and the Obi-Wan television series. Gracious me. It, it takes place before the original movie trilogy. Yep. And the three sequel movies, as well as The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. Yes. I really got into it this time. I, They're I wanted all to over right. the map. Yeah. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. Nevertheless, Andor is also the fourth live action Star Wars series from Disney+. Plus, yes. Following on in production order only from The Mandalorian, Obi-Wan and the book of Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. Now, big bada-boom. I guess it would be a Death Star-sized explosion there. Within the Star Wars universe, the Empire is approaching the peak of its power over the far, far away galaxy. Mm-hmm. 
as it continues to consolidate its hold over star systems, individual worlds and local and multi-stellar corporations. Yes. I'm not surprised that the Empire would want a strong grip upon big company. Nah, big business. That's <laughs> where it's at, yeah. The Rebellion is as yet fragmented. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're- quite at the phase where we're in alliance yet. No, with resistance forming around particular individuals and local nodes who are themselves beginning to reach out to each other to someday coalesce into something larger. And playing the title character is Diego Luna, Cassian Andor. Yes, reprising his role. And I think good for him that he's going years later to play a younger version of a character that he played. Good for him. Yes. <laughs> the ageless Diego Luna. Yeah. He's in that sort of age group where he can do that, though. He's an orphan, the character that is, from a planet that was a failed Imperial mining colony. Yes. But I, I think we'll go for a track first before we get into that. I wanted to play um, a Bowie track. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to play Rebel Rebel again. <laughs> I oh. mean, why not? But yes. <laughs> I wanted some connection with Star Wars, and I thought, uh, we'll go for Ewan McGregor. Love it. Obi-Wan Kenobi or, you know, young Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we've got this one where – and I thought, okay, David Bowie, Obi, uh, Ewan McGregor, that would normally be Nature Boy from uh, Moulin Rouge. Oh, yes. Um, Bowie's cover of uh, the song for that. Uh, but in this case, I, it suddenly occurred to me that McGregor actually sings Heroes. Yes. In the, in the Elephant Love Medley, which... Oh, this is such a classic track. <laughs> he undertakes this with uh, Nicole Kidman as they're actually in a big uh, elephant uh, oh. yes. prop. Listen to this many times on repeat when Moulin Rouge first came mm. out. <laughs> I've sort of clipped it a bit, bit to fit in. Oh, no. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's our Bowie connection for today with Star Wars. This is Peter Woodward. I play the Technomage Galen in Babylon 5 and Crusade. And you are listening to Zero G. Who do you serve? And who do you trust? I actually expect mystifying Melbourne to turn up here <laughs> and look at us. <laughs> ah, Elephant Love Medley, which of course is Obi-Wan Kenobi romancing mm. Padme Adam. No, I didn't say that. I, I was not <laughs> going there. It's Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman from Moulin Rouge doing a... Bowie cover in the middle of that. That little medley, yep. So that was our Bowie for the, for the day. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, one of the great songs from Moulin Rouge. I actually like that movie. Yeah, I really liked I'm it too. I'm down with that. It came out at an age, when I was in an age and I was obsessed with it. Like all of – it was like cinema. It was so big and crazy and, yeah. And it had Jim Broadman yes. covering a Madonna song. And everybody just going in <laughs> full 100. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, who was um, Tinkerbell? Oh, I was Kylie, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. Onwards to Star Wars Andor. We were talking about Diego Luger playing Cassian mm-hmm. Andor. Uh, in the story, he's an orphan from a planet that was a failed Imperial mining colony, uh, rescued by tech salvagers. Mm. He grew up on another mining world called Ferrix, which is becoming under increasing Imperial domination, yes. ironically encouraged by Andor himself who triggers mm. imperial attention when he's 
thieving ways mm. leads him to resist arrest by local company cops mm-hmm. with fatal results. Mm. And that's pretty brutal, actually. Yeah, it? yeah. So we get to see in the course of this 12-episode first season how Andor hires on with a heist that the resistance is planning mm-hmm. and later falls seriously and ironically accidentally afoul of the Empire's tyranny mm-hmm. and eventually is drawn to become a full rebel with the cause himself by the time he gets to Andor. Yeah. Uh, sorry, to Rogue One, yeah. the series. And, the movie, yep. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. There's another series between this yep. and the movie. Rogue One, yep. Rogue One. And the thing is they were going to make five seasons but they've shut that down into two. So the next season will be a series of bursts of time with Andor and then they'll go mm. you know, a year later, da-da-da, yep. yep. they're going to okay. burst through it like that. Now the thing is, normally we can get a bit, and this was one of the problems with the Obi-Wan series, uh, plot armour. We know that Andor, nothing can happen to him before the Rogue One movie mm. in a permanent way unless he's a zombie or something like that. You know, and There's no indications of that. So far in Star Wars. Although, you know, if Grogu could revive, <laughs> you know, it could happen. So he is great in this. He carries mm. this just like uh, Pedro does in yep. The Mandalorian. Uh, and I-, I thought that he managed to do that retro take on the character really well. Yeah, yeah. Like we're, it's kind of can be hard sometimes to come in and, and build out a backstory, but I actually think it's done well here. And that is not just his great acting. I think the plotting and the pacing, because there's 12 episodes, but there's kind of three episode arcs within that. So I'm just sort of starting out and I know after episode three, you really sort of kick into another gear and things start to take off. And from what I gather, that keeps happening kind of every couple of episodes. Mm. Uh, And I think that building up that tension again, even though we know what's going to happen in Rogue One and after, uh, is quite a skill. And I think they've done it beautifully here. On the Ferex mining colony, because this is, you know, the Rebel Alliance, there's Mm. lots of people involved, even in the proto stages mm. here. Uh, we've got Adria Arjona playing Bix. Mm-hmm. Here, here I run into that Star Wars problem of weird names and stuff. Uh, and she's a, a mechanic and black market dealer and she's one of Andor's friends on um, yep. on Ferrix. Uh, mm-hmm. um, that actor, Adria, played the roles of Dorothy Gale in Emerald City in 2017. Mm. She was in Good Omens in 2019. Oh, nice. And now, um, you know, Pacific Rim Uprising, Six Underground, and Morbius as well. So she's been around quite a bit. Uh, she, I don't know if you could call her the um, the love interest because she's not, uh, not really. There's elements of And that. that's to undersell her a bit, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's yeah, that's way underselling her. Uh, she is just a person trying to get by, but mm. she's also got a connection to the Alliance. Yeah, she's pretty savvy. And she's pretty savvy. I think she makes a very good fist of this particular role and is the subject of some horrible things that are done to her in the course of the show. I'm sort of going through people at the moment who are kind of like connected to the rebellion in one way or another. Fiona Shaw, veteran actress, plays uh, Marva Andor. So she's Cassian's adoptive mother. Mm -hmm. We know her as uh, Petunia Dursley in Harry Potter films. (laughs) Uh, and also as um, Marnie Stonebrook in True Blood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's had some good juicy roles, hasn't oh, she? Oh, she's been everywhere she has. And she actually is, I feel like she's the heart of this series. She's really nice in this, I think. But also particularly, I don't want to use the word feisty because she's way more than that. 
Um, but she's a complex character. Mm. And in a way, she is foreshadowing the journey that Andor goes through in the course of the series yeah. because she's kind of already there. Mm. So I, I really appreciated her character. And she is an, an, an elderly actress and riffs off the character of Andor quite well, of Cassian quite well, and also the droid that is her companion. Yes. yes. Which is just heartbreaking in mm. many ways. Uh, we've also got... Uh, another actress, Irish Australian actress, Genevieve O'Reilly, playing Senator Mon mm. Mothma. She's embedded in the Empire, but we all know that she's going to become a rebel or is in the process of it in the uh, in the other movies where she's appeared in. Seen her before in lots of different things. Uh, first two sequels to The Matrix and in the Singaporean science fiction film Avatar. Not that. Not, neither one of the other two avatars that that brings to mind. <laughs> <laughs> so she has an interesting role. She's got a complicated mix because she's got this ne'er-do-well wastrel husband. And also, I've only seen one scene of him and I'm not about him. I don't like him. No, he's a, Yuck. He's a bit. No. Dead weight. <laughs> dead weight. But he's important. And, mm, and she utilises his dead weight as an asset, okay. mm-hmm. which I thought was quite clever. She also has to deal with her rebellious daughter. Mm. If you're going to be a rebel, you're going to have a rebellious kid. <laughs> so uh, that's quite a, a nuanced role. She is actually under mm. a lot of stress. She's part of the empire, mm. part of its ruling class, and yet she's got to maintain this mm. duality as a, Oof, a rebel. A lot of stress. A lot of stress. And it feel, this show shows you all of that stress. Mm. Uh, Faye Marseille plays Vel Sartha, another rebel leader. Mm-hmm. And seen her before in uh, The White Queen and Game of Thrones where she played a character called The Waif. Mm-hmm. Also in a Black Mirror episode called Hated in the Nation, according to what oh, I've yeah. read. She's Mon Moffa's cousin as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's got – this is the thing about um, Andor. You, show, you see lots of different people along the various roads mm. to the rebellion at different stages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably the one who is the standout – to me, is Stellan Skarsgård yep. playing Lutheran Rao. Now, he's a – in his uh, – it's a Scarlet Pimpernel type role. When he's on Coruscant, the throne world, mm. he is a military antiques shop dealer. Yep. And that allows him to travel around the empire. Yes, great cover, very great kind of role that's going to help him out, yeah. And there's this brilliant moment where he comes back from a – uh, liaison trip with some proto-rebellion people and he has to slip back into the role of, of slightly florid, oh, decadent. Some, a great, yeah, I know the exact bit you mean where you yeah. can see him starting to settle back into how he's going to, his mannerisms and how he's going to perform yeah. back on Corsican. Yeah, it's an amazing role, a great role for Skarsgård. He's, he's fab. You know, we've, we've, we don't need to go into his background. We've talked about him so much in context. He rarely goes a foot wrong, I think, personally, yeah, yeah. but... He's really good at that, and some folks have have him pegged as some kind of surviving Jedi Knight. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, well, I know you were about, what, four episodes in or something? Four or five, yeah, yeah. Yeah, having seen the whole season, I can tell you that he stands up and represents when he has to. I bet. Yeah, I'd like, okay, yeah. He gets some of the great speeches in the show, a really killer speech. Mm, He's he's good, isn't he? That sets the table for the rebellion, because not only do we see a lot of the Empire in this and their, mm. and their evil procedural. Mm. We get a lot of the rebellions procedural yes. too. Yep. And Skarsgård's character, Luthen 
he is very much into asymmetrical warfare. Mm -hmm. And this is something that they haven't really pushed too far. They did in Rogue One, um, and I guess that's why it's in here as well. You know, they are terrorists in many Mm. respects, as well as being freedom fighters, you know, potato, potato. Mm. Um, And they are trying to get the Empire to tighten its fist and piss more people off and turn them to resistance fighters. To the... The cause. Yeah. And this means that there is collateral damage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a complicated thing. It's not just white as stormtroopers or black as Darth Vader. You know, there's there's complexities and shades of grey there. And Skarsgård is brilliant at that kind of thing. Mm. You know, you just want the action figure immediately. <laughs> and oh, I, I, I want to see where that goes in the second season too. Assuming that he survives the first season, which... Oh. You know, things are. This is a complicated thing. There, he might not ever see another sunrise because that's the way it is when you're embedded within the empire. Mm. Um, also, now we flick over to the uh, imperial side. Denise Goff plays uh, Dedra Miro, mm-hmm. a supervisor for the Imperial Security Bureau. Yep, another Irish actress, and um, saw her in that wonderful uh, Arthurian fantasy, The Kid Who Would Be King. Oh yeah. And she is there to embody the ambition of the empire. Yeah, yeah. Dog eat dog organization. Climb that corporate ladder. Yeah. How did you feel about that? I thought I, I thought she was great. I really straight away from her early introduction, I could tell what they were kind of doing with her character. And I think she does a lot without speaking. So she does a lot of face acting, thinking, kind of. And you can tell already uh, that I think she's going to be a key player. And I actually like that they're introducing some of that side of it, like the behind the scenes, the procedural of how that all happens, the conversations that are had. And I will say one thing I've noticed about the show is there's a lot of exposition to cover, but they do do it as artfully as possible, I yeah. think. Usually in the process of doing it. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's inserted quite nicely into the plot or into what people are saying or doing that you start to build out, oh, okay, this, I know this about this planet, I know this about what's happening here. And it's actually done quite well considering how much backstory you kind of need to get a grip on. Mm. We have Kyle Soller playing Cyril Khan. Um, and he's a, a, a corporate cop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, until he f- runs into this whole Andor thing. And then he gets yeah. he gets um, dudded by that. Mm. And, you know, this is the Empire. You feel like he gets shot or something. But they don't. They send him home. He's a very interesting one. I'm at the point where I'm starting to see they're still going to use him as a character and I'm intrigued by that. Uh, well, I won't spoil that, but it's hilarious what they do with him. Okay. Um, but it, he's all there, there to show you how tyranny works. Uh, about the trickle down effects of it, um, how it pulls other into being others into being bullies as well. Yeah, you know, big bullies, medium bullies, petty micro bullies. Uh, they they build complicity for the characters. The fascist procedural. There's there's a cube farm. Mm. There's a prison that that features in this story, and there's so much involved in that that it's another huge story arc. I won't go too far into that, but I will tell you that Andy Circus features oh. quite heavily in that in one of his best roles, and I don't mean be cool. Yeah, since since he. Maybe not. I won't include Supreme Leader Snoke in the trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, you get lots of stuff in there. Forrest Whitaker returns again, mm. uh, playing his role from uh, from uh, Rogue One. Uh, I think this is 
an impressive series. One of the best Star Wars series I've seen. Look, it doesn't have the Mandalorian in it, my favourite. No, but. no. But I do think as well it came at the right time where we needed to disengage from some of that core yeah, yeah. Skywalker saga stuff yep, yep. and branch out. And that's what Rogue One did beautifully when it came out. And so this makes sense that after those few series and after Obi-Wan, now here we are looking, you know, building out a backstory that's kind of free from some of the mm. the chains of having to stick to what we think of as Star Wars. And, in fact, I think Star Wars, it being in the Star Wars universe is a bit secondary in some ways because yep. it's a lot about, you know, like you said, rebelling, political intrigue. Um, it's a heist movie. It's a prison movie. It's mm. a re- it is a rebellion movie as well. Um because it was, uh, they took, they filmed it at Pinewood in London. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know, we're sort of kind of going back to you know origin areas for Star Wars. Being you can filmed. tell some of the scenery already. I'm like, yeah, that's real British. <laughs> and the acting, you know, the honest, yes. the accents, and it's also a- very multicultural cast. And I think in term, well, diverse. I think it's actually just done in a really nice organic way um, that just fits really well. Mm. And. I think there's a because I didn't use the volume, the LED screen for mm. this one. Um, I think it's got a really impressive use of landscape. Yep. Actually, go on location. Yep, for sure. And the sets are really good in this. Yeah. I felt a good sense of place everywhere I went. Agree. And they're hopping from ve- some very different environments. And I agree, it felt, I think it, it fit the tone, which is. I think what I like about this is it's not too silly and it's not too earnest. Mm. It's pitched at the right level and those landscapes and some of those feelings and environments and the subtle characters all contribute. Look, it only gets better from the episodes that you've seen. good, good. Um, And it's so solid and it's moving and, you know, you fear the Empire at the end of this, even though they are idiots. You can tell that they're idiots. But that's the case too, right? Like all these big... Things, you know, they're scary, but they're built up of obvious some incompetent people sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, you know, extreme right-wing zanies they are, the Empire. And I think it's a great addition to the Star Wars universe. It can actually sit there without being part of the exactly. Star Wars. On its own, it's, it's a really nice piece of sci-fi mm, world mm. building. Now, all right, well, uh, I will mention if you watch all 12 episodes... Don't leave your seat until the end credit scene, okay. the after the credit scene. Good tip, good tip. Uh, there's only one um, in the whole yep. series and that's the one, don't miss it. Okay, that's good to know. Uh-huh. Okay, so we're going to go over another track from Andor. Yep. Uh, which one have we got? Uh, so I think we're going to go 30 Shifts Later yes. by Nicholas Brattel, who did the score. Mm-hmm. He also did the great score for Succession. I looked him up. Yeah, and he did a lot of evolving of the music for this. And there's a lot of music that gets produced in mm. the show, on the set. Yes, yes, uh, and, nice. uh, Including in the last episode, which is absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay. it for Zero G today. Check out Star Wars and or on Disney+. Plus. Yes. Thank you to Alice Savage, our podcaster. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.